Kia ora, and welcome to the New Zealand History Podcast channel, where you will find talks on Aotearoa New Zealand history, culture, and society. These talks are organised by Manatu Taonga, the Ministry for Culture and Heritage, with the support of the Alexander Turnbull Library. They are recorded live, either via Zoom or in person at Tipuna Matauranga or Aotearoa, the National Library of New Zealand. Tēnā koutou, Cornel Atkinson tōku ingoa, kei te manatū taonga o i mahi ana, nō mai haere mai ki te kopapa o te rā nei. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Um, welcome everyone, I'm Neil Atkinson, Chief Historian at the Ministry for Culture and Heritage. Manatū taonga, the Ministry for Culture and Heritage, has been delighted to have worked with um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and uh, more latterly, uh, Massey University Press, to, um, to research, write and publish this um, Wonderful history, uh, New Zealand's Foreign Service, uh, a project which began um, in 2018 and really, really um, um, gained gained um, some momentum in 2019 when uh, the ministry engaged um, Ian McGibbon as commissioning editor, and it was great to have Ian involved um, again with this project after um, being connected to uh, the history function at Manatu Tonga and its predecessors in internal affairs for many many years. Um, and so um, I'm going to introduce um, Dr. Malcolm McKinnon, who's an adjunct associate professor at Victoria University of Wellington. Be well known to many of you, I'm, I'm sure, from his publications in fields of international relations, economic history, and, and other other roles, and including a general editor of the New Zealand Historical Atlas. And I think Malcolm's played a really important role in this project, sort of more behind the scenes as a member of the, the governance group um, and also the editorial committee. And I know Ian has expressed his um, thanks to. Malcolm's contribution. So um, please um, join me in welcoming Malcolm up here and he'll introduce our speakers. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Ian. Tēnā koutou katoa. And it's uh, great to see an audience here in the auditorium for, to discuss this book and also, I believe, an audience online. Uh, it's great to be, have reached this point. Uh, Neil didn't mention that, of course, the, the course of producing, researching, producing and writing the book took place through the pandemic months and years and that added an extra level of complexity to getting it done and it's a terrific uh, result that it's come in on time and uh, is such a substantial and interesting uh, work. Uh, I have an extra copy here, but for those of you who have not yet bought it, uh, copies are available in all good bookstores, possibly indeed in other bookstores, but certainly in good bookstores. So uh, I don't want to dwell further on the book because we have three speakers here to comment on it and uh, we'll follow a procedure which I'm going to outline in a second and then there'll be an opportunity for Q&A from the uh, auditorium audience and possibly if it arises uh, from some online questions. So the, the procedure we're going to follow is we're going to get the speakers and I'll introduce them in a second to address two questions. The first question is what is distinctive or unique about MFAT's approach to diplomacy in New Zealand and globally? How did that play out in the time period you focused on in your chapter? The second question will be what was involved in the process of researching and writing your chapters in the book? What were some of the challenges you faced in this process? So that each speaker is going to speak for some minutes on the first question and then they'll come back and speak for some minutes on the second question and then we will have the discussion. So the speakers we have with us today are Ian McGibbon, already mentioned 
by Neil, long-term colleague and professional friend and friend of mine. And uh, without Ian's very, very modest, uh, this book is in many respects his creation and it's uh, a terrific tribute to him uh, to see it in print. So he's going to talk first. Stephen Loveridge is responsible for one of the chapters in part two of the book. He also has an impressive career as a younger scholar in, write in historical writing in 20th century New Zealand. So he will speak. And then Anita Bryant, who contributed two chapters to the third section and also has a distinguished career as a writer and a commentator, will contribute uh, by speaking about her part of the book and her responses. So I'm now going to invite you to welcome Ian to the podium to answer the first question. That will be followed by Stephen and Anita, and uh, then I'll briefly remind us of what the second question is. So Ian, over to you. Thank you very much, Malcolm. So the early um, figures in the department had a habit of describing it in, in sort of biological terms. Uh, George Laking said it was an exotic bloom in the harsh environment of the time of the wartime Prime Minister's department and a somewhat strange creature. And Alistair McIntosh said it took the department almost as long as it does a human being to come of age. Um, so if we follow that uh, metaphor, well, McIntosh undoubtedly was the father of New Zealand. Uh, of the Department of External Affairs and of the Diplomatic Service. Perhaps not the, the father of diplomacy, which I think we could say was Berenson, but uh, McIntosh certainly was the, was the founder of the department. Um, in my period, to follow the metaphor even further, was really the childhood and adolescence of the, of the department to come of age in the 60s. Uh, initially, it was going to be just the period of 43 to 66, which was the tenure of Alistair McIntosh. Um, the editorial committee of which, and, and basically it was Malcolm, suggested that really there should be a, a split at 49, and, we, and I agreed, and the governance group agreed that we should have basically a, an earlier part covering 43 to 49, the early childhood, and then a, a later description of 49 to 66. Um, I've put up there the main issues that were involved. McIntosh actually said the 43 to 49 period was the golden age of the department in later life when he was reviewing his career. But um, all, uh, the distinctive thing about this uh, period really was the inexperience of our diplomats. They were learning on the job. Um, the insecurity of the department. Um, it came out of the Prime Minister's department during the war. For the first six years, there was certainly no certainty that the department would continue, that it might not, not be subsumed back into the Prime Minister's department. Um, after 49, um, 16, uh, the 17 years, only three of those years were Labour governments. The, the, the National Party took a very uh, dim view of the department, especially when it was uh, formed. It believed that it was far too um, expensive for New Zealand to run a diplomatic service. 
So it was a relatively unfavourable climate, so there was insecurity in that regard. Um, it was only when economic issues began to intrude that the department began to find its feet in the 60s when the e British made their first attempt to get into the EEC. Um, so I, I would say that the distinctive feature of the early part was insecurity and learning on the job. But also, um, this was also a period when Britain was still a great power. Um, after 1956, its decline became more obvious. But we were operating in a British world, and our diplomats benefited from that because we had the, the, the weight of the British diplomatic service around us, and we were able to, to use an, a bit of a cliche, punch a little bit above our weight in places like San Francisco, where we um, took part in forming the United Nations. Um, so those are the main issues in, in my period. We originally planned to have one chapter in the book covering diversity, the, the development of the ministry, or the diversity of the ministry, Eventually it became obvious that it wasn't going to work. We needed a more chronological treatment. Um, in my period, up to 1966, it wasn't really a difficult issue because there was very little diversity. It was really a white male institution. Early, in the early part, there were some women uh, who were appointed. Macintosh was not averse to appointing them until he found that they all got married as soon as they were posted to Washington or London, so then he, then he became adamant that men were the only people to invest in for, as diplomats. But uh, I also wrote two ch dedicated chapters on diversity for the second and third parts, and I'm not going to go into, into them here because I've only got six minutes, but um, I would say the distinctive aspect of that is the 1970s, the tenure of Frank Corner, who I would say was a star in terms of setting the ministry on the, on the course of um, adjusting to societal changes, um, and women and Māori came into the picture in the 70s in the way they hadn't been in the early part of the department. So I will stop now and uh, pass back to... If we continue the popular metaphor that Ian has introduced of casting the Foreign Service in biological terms, then my chapter, my period 1967 to 1989, might make it the adolescent years. Uh, indeed, aptly, we see changes, experiments, a newfound strength, sometimes with an uncertainty on how to use it. Um, a growing sense of confusion about a changing world and one's place within it. But given time constraints, I'm going to stick to three points of how this period wrought a distinctive diplomacy. The first concerns the fundamental changes in the geopolitical environment diplomats operated within. Imagine a world in which New Zealand participated in the US-led isolation of China, in which sincere echoes of savages, where Britain goes, we go, are still familiar to the public ear in which the diplomatic footprint is in the early part of growing beyond its older stomping ground of the English-speaking world, in which ANZUS and Ford Defence in Southeast Asia are central planks in defence policy, 
in which a military commitment in South Vietnam is seen as critical in affirming New Zealand's credibility as an ally, in which the Cold War is among the most prominent features shaping the geopolitical environment. Imagine a world in which New Zealand has opened relations with the People's Republic of China, in which diplomatic missions have spread well beyond the English-speaking world into new territories in the Middle East, Africa, South America, and where Pacific relations have attracted enhanced attention, in which where Britain goes into the EEC, we cannot, in which forward defence has faded and New Zealand's role in ANZUS has been suspended, in which New Zealand sponsors a united Vietnam's entry into the UN, in which the Berlin Wall, that quintessential symbol of East-West division, was about to fall. This is the same country separated by roughly 20 years and is indicative of the vast amount that changed in the period I had to review. While I'm obviously showing the deck in lieu of the cards here, these shifts demanded a distinct approach to diplomacy and the book's contents illustrate how diplomats were at the sharp end in efforts to manage some of the dramatic shifts in New Zealand's place in the world. Secondly, obviously New Zealand was changing alongside the wider world over these decades. And shifting domestic environment, or the shifting domestic environment, constitutes a second factor in shaping diplomacy in this period. Political opinion and public protest regarding foreign policies and international issues were not new, but 1967 to 1989 certainly showcases a heightened attention and capacity to mobilise bodies and make noise. The period saw protests over news that the United States planned to build a global navigation station in New Zealand, which was thought to have military applications, the Omega Station. But the Vietnam War, protests over sporting contacts with apartheid South Africa, protests over nuclear testing in the Pacific, protests over visits from warships neither confirming nor denying whether they carried nuclear weapons or were propelled by nuclear propulsion, protests over French security agents sinking the Rainbow Warrior, Moreover, these protests were not simply uh, between public, the public and officials, but played out in the arena of party politics, ending the previous era of bipartisan consensus on foreign policy. Again, diplomats operated within a sometimes volatile environment, and a sense of prudency in approaching some issues did not always align with political opinion. To pick one example, as Secretary of Foreign Affairs, in the aftermath of the Rainbow Warrior bombing, Merv Norrish, in his words, sought an honourable settlement which would permit New Zealand and France to put the episode behind them, and to avoid a damaging confrontation in which France possessed far greater resources. This favouring of prudency and pragmatism was, I think to put it lightly, at some remove from a general outrage in the aftermath of the bombing. To take this theme of change one step further, Social shifts were felt within the Foreign Service itself, a third factor which made diplomacy distinctive. As chapters in the book attest to, the sexual revolution, biculturalism and gay liberation all played out within the Foreign Service, alongside wider society. Moreover, an expanding diplomatic footprint, which was pursuing a more diverse agenda, demanded wider skill sets. The need for greater language proficiencies offers some vivid examples. In the mid-1960s, Alistair McIntosh bemoaned the lack of staff fluent in Italian. The Rome Embassy was an important site in addressing Britain's entry to the EEC, and one of the critical objectives in Italy was to get to know and influence the Italian Minister of Agriculture, the most senior Italian official who went to Brussels to lodge Italy's vote on matters affecting New Zealand's agricultural imports to Europe. 
Likewise, anticipation of increased contact with China in the early 1970s brought home forcibly, as the Secretary of Foreign Affairs George Laking put it, that the ministry had no officer fluent in Mandarin. In the face of limited resources, a crash course was uh, instigated to build up a core of Chinese speakers. In summary, New Zealand was not an island against the seminal and complex changes which unfurled around the world between 1967 and 1989, and this was especially so on the diplomatic front. And I think all of this gives some sense of why my chapter was entitled Meeting New Challenges. Tina koutou katoa, ko Anita Perkins toko ingoa, no airana ko tirana ingarangi me parani o kutipuna, no otipoti ahau, e mihikau ana ki ngā tangata whenua i puripuri ana i te mauri o te whenua mā tātou. Tina koutou. Um, so I'd just like to um, acknowledge the people of the land, um, Taranaki Whanui and um, Ngāti Toa, um, and my name's Anita Perkins, although I'm sure Anita Bryan is amazing. Um, so I, the chapters that I covered um, looked at the period from roughly about um, 1990 to the present. Um, and so I kind of took a slightly different approach, um, trying to sum up the New Zealand approach to diplomacy, kind of an almost a typology of characteristics. Um, so I think as I'm speaking, it may be interesting for you to think about whether you think this is typical of New Zealanders in general, or whether it's something specific to our foreign affairs um, uh, and diplomats. Um, so one of the key characteristics, I think, of the period that I covered is um, about fair-mindedness and listening to all voices. Um, and one of the areas in which this played out was in the 2015-16 um, Security Council campaign for a seat. Um, and the planning for that began in around 2012, and one of the really key messages there was New Zealand is fair, practical and constructive. And this was something that really resonated with the general approach of New Zealand diplomats and trade in other multilateral arenas. Um, another key element, I think, is being strategic. Um, so one of the areas in which that played out was when uh, New Zealand was really trying to um, think about um, re-engaging with the um, US after we'd kind of fallen out over nuclear matters. Um, and some of the efforts, for example, from Roy Ferguson um, in the early 2000s and kind of taking a New Zealand Inc. approach and engaging on a number of fronts um, was quite a strategic um, sort of thought program. Um, another element I think is quite distinctive for us is thinking long term. So in terms of trade negotiations, for example, before you sign um, a free trade agreement, there are years and years of building relationships. And that's where, for example, the work of diplomats on the ground, building those relationships, um, whether it be through meetings or, or cocktail parties or whatever it is, really lays the foundation for trade negotiations, um, trade negotiators coming in later on. Um, Another area was um, kind of an insistence on working within the international rules-based system. If you listen to just about any media release from MFAT, you'll hear about um, the way in which we really ground all of our approaches on international rules-based systems. Um, but at the same time, also maintaining an independent foreign policy voice. So, and that's something that we've done um, consistently in a number of different contexts, even when we've been under quite a lot of pressure from other players, um, including with the US on the nuclear issue. Um, I also think there's a fair amount um, of courage. Sometimes our diplomats are in really high pressure situations um, where they're negotiating all night long, 
or sometimes they're actually in, in situations which are quite dangerous. Um, and so, you know, they're really putting themselves out there for the interests of New Zealand. Um, so also tenacity, um, adaptability, innovation, humility, um, humour, and sometimes even self-deprecation. So I think we've had a number, for example, of representatives working um, in the World Trade Organization, and some of our chairs have become very well known for their kind of sense of humour. Um, also, I think I would add to that list a lack of pretense and a good dose of pragmatism. So one of the interviews I did was with Jonathan Austin, who was the New Zealand representative um, in Timor and he had Helen Clark visiting him at one point and he had a Land Rover and he was trying to brief um, the Prime Minister on what was going on but he didn't have enough seats so he had to fashion himself a stool to sit extra on the um, on the Land Rover but also while doing this formality so there's a bit of pragmatism there as well. I think there is an innate devotion to advancing New Zealand's interests and in working with other countries towards better global outcomes whether that is in trade, conservation, uh, nuclear disarmament or climate change. So a lot of these times um, in these meetings, people are working very long hours and it is a really like a career long commitment. Um, so the diplomats are often career diplomats and, and they're devoting their whole lives and they have a real passion and drive for doing what they do. Um, and although it wasn't really a focus um, of my two chapters, um, I also would like to make note of the way in which um, Te Ao Māori, Tikanga and Kawa have made um, Aotearoa's approach to diplomacy unique. Um, I think we see this quite strongly in the language and concepts of Minister Mahuta that she draws on in some of her foreign policy speeches. Um, a couple of moments that really stood out to me in terms of the research that I did. Um, one was um, our top trade official, um, Vangelis Vitalis, interviewing him. Um, he was telling me about a really stressful negotiation that he was involved in um, when he was actually working in an in independent capacity as a chair of the negotiations in 2015. Um, so he had to... Um, try and achieve consensus among all 154 states on the decision on agricultural export competition. Um, he'd been working, chairing this for four nights in a row in sessions that finished at 4 a.m. and then restarted three hours later. Um, he tried to encourage the negotiations by withholding the full text, but refused to budge even when two of the biggest players importuned him to uh, reveal the, the text with them. And I just think, you know, the people on the street don't always know about these moments of, of intense stress where people that putting them themselves, and I think that really shows also um, this principle of fair-mindedness playing out, and the motion passed, um, so that was a successful outcome. Um, there was also the story of um, Judith Trotter, um, who was working um, at our embassy in Rome, and then um, in, in the 90s, um, when the situation in Bosnia deteriorated, uh, New Zealand sent a 250-strong infantry company to Vitez, uh, northwest of Sarajevo. And so New Zealand um, needed to have um, credentials established for that. Um, and so Judith Trotter had to make her way to Sarajevo, which at the time was under siege. Um, as she arrived at the presidential palace to present her credentials, four missiles hit the back of the building and there were injured people being taken away. 
Um, so the odd mix of decorum and danger of the situation was highlighted by the response of Trotter's local interpreter when she complimented on her smart appearance. Um, the interpreter said, we in Sarajevo wear our best clothes every day because it could be our last. So just the, the tenacity and the dedication and devotion to what was needed for New Zealand at that time, um, I think is really illustrated in that example from the 90s. And the story that probably um, hit me the most um, in doing this research was about um, the work that New Zealand did on the Bougainville crisis, um, where uh, Deputy Secretary Neil Walter, former High Commissioner to Papua New Guinea, John Hayes, um, McKinnon's Private Secretary, Bede Corrie, and Roger Mortlock, the NZ Chief, um, NZDF Chief of Operations at the time, um, went to Bougainville to um, attempt um, peace talks. Um, there was no, there was not, that was not without risk. Um, Hayes' helicopter actually came under fire um, as they were attempting to do that. But they were able to convince some of the warring parties to come over to burning camp near Christchurch. Um, they didn't send, set a time limit for those talks, but had time, space, and encouragement. And there was um, the result after two weeks was the Burnham Declaration, um, which served as a basis for the peace process. Um, Tikanga Māori also played an important part in that talk. Um, and Bede Corrie observed that the Porphyry welcome had an almost transformative effect on the participants and reminded them that New Zealand was of the Pacific. So those are some of the, it's really hard to pull out because there are so many amazing examples from the time period that I, I looked at. But I think those are some of the key characteristics of what perhaps makes New Zealand diplomats um, unique for the time period that I covered. Uh, thank you very much, Anita, my mayor culpa about your name. It was Freudian. And, and to Ian and Stephen as well, you'll appreciate that in that question, the speakers were being asked to really talk about the actors, the diplomats, and the role that they played. There are many of them in the auditorium today. I hope you recognised a lot of those commentaries. The second question takes us more to the task of these individuals as historians, how they approached the task of writing these chapters as historians, the challenges they faced. So we'll start again with Ian, followed by Stephen, and then followed by Anita. Thank you. So the first uh, essential in writing chapters, especially if you're doing three, three chapters, is to work out a plan of how to approach it. And to some extent, um, that, was, that was resolved in the early stages of this project when when we or the governance group agreed that there should be an, a ten chapter book uh, three three chapters of three three parts of three chapters each uh, covering the periods forty three to sixty six which was mcintosh's tenure uh, by far the longest uh, uh, nineteen sixty six to eighty nine um, there was a national split in 89 with the passing of the State Sector Act and also huge changes on the international scene. The Berlin War came down, the Soviet Union dissolved. Um, the two issues that had been the main issues in the early part, decolonisation and, and the Cold War, basically had gone by 1989. So we started in a new, a new period. So the idea was that each, each section, section would have 
one chapter covering the structure, um, the organisation of the department, the creation of posts and the um, role arrangements. I think um, what, what particular uh, elements of the department would be doing um, that would that would set the set the scene for the second chapter, which would be on challenges, um, and then a third chapter would be on the achievements. Uh, okay, there's immediately people said, well, there's problems really defining what's a challenge and what's an achievement, because an achievement is overcoming a challenge, and I could see the point, and to some extent that was a problem in the later chapters. But I think in my period it wasn't because there were there were a number of clearly defined challenges um, one was the attitude of politicians to the department and to diplomats in general um, that was based to, to a large extent on public opinion which tended to think that diplomats um, went overseas on the taxpayers payers purse and lived the high life a completely wrong uh, um, assessment of what, what um, diplomats actually do. Um, so one of the other challenge, uh, challenges that I had to focus on was of actually serving overseas, especially in those early years because it was really an ad hoc arrangement. Um, each diplomat had a set of conditions set out by the minister. Um, they could differ the the, the issue of working out the cost of living in countries they were going to was difficult. Berenson always complained that his pay had halved while he was in Washington because of changes in the um, rate of exchange. Um, that was merely one of his many grievances, I must say. There were also the challenge of working at, at, within, within New Zealand, all diplomats were part of the public service they had to take leave when they went to serve at an overseas post. But they were within New Zealand, they were part of a public service controlled by the Public Service Commission, um, which had its own ideas on, on promotion and, and all that sort of thing. And a lot of Macintosh's time was spent um, trying to persuade the Commission that the department was different to the traditional New Zealand departments where you, you entered as a cadet and you moved up through the grades and eventually you may become secretary of the department. Uh, foreign affairs or external affairs had a lot of highly qualified people in the lower grades all moving up and certainly the, the Public Service Commission just couldn't get a handle of how to promote people through the, through the grades in that period. So that's one of the challenges. Um, the challenge, and I mentioned the public perception of diplomats, the challenge of serving overseas I think was an important element of that second chapter that I wrote. Um, just finding a house was really a hassle. Um, Shanahan went to Singapore and he looked at 30 houses. Admittedly he was um, finicky about what he was willing to live in, but uh, eventually he found a house. But that was symptomatic of the problem. You arrived in a big city and unless someone was leaving and had their flat and they could let you go to it, you had to go and find a flat and or an apartment or a house 
and that was always a difficult issue. Um, the other challenge was, especially in those early years, was because of the Cold War that the problem of security. Um, Macintosh had a reputation for appointing people with left-wing opinions, um, drove Berenson crazy because he, he, he actually described them as those infernal little Bolsheviks in Wellington, um, lower members of the department. Um, but there were issues of um, security in relation to Bill Such, who went to uh, New York and, according to the Matrokin archive, was actually recruited by Soviet intelligence in, while he was serving in New York. And Macintosh had to make a rush dash trip to New York at one stage to um, look into allegations that were being made about um, such. And, and one of the points in the book I make is about our leading dip woman diplomat at the time, who was his underling in New York and got on the wrong side of such. Um, unfairly, I think, and I portray in the book, but um, Such believes she was telling tales to, to the government about his um, speeches in the UN, which were very um, pro-Soviet. Um, but there was also um, Paddy Costello, who had served in, in Moscow and was certainly British intelligence regarded as a communist agent of some form. There's a, some, some tentative um, issues in the Matrokin archive about Costello, but as I make the point in the book, he, as a public servant and a diplomat for New Zealand, you can't really fault his performance. I can't, in this forum, go into why I say that, but um, you can read it in the book. So there were a number of challenges that were um, quite substantial that had to be overcome by the department in those early years. Um, the achievements, uh, I think I, I've listed there, security accomplishments, because Frank Corner, in his later years, said that, in his opinion, the greatest achievement New Zealand Department of External Affairs made in those early years was securing a, a, a security guarantee from the United States. That's an opinion, of course, that Berenson would have completely endorsed. He, he called it the greatest um, prize that a... Sorry, Deutsch said it was the greatest prize. Um, Berenson said it was the greatest thing that a great country could afford to a small, insignificant country in the South Pacific. I can't know... I can't remember the exact words, but it's along those lines. So to corner... Um, the ANZUS Treaty was a major achievement of the Ministry. Um, during the 50s there was a lot of work on defence planning in Southeast Asia and we became involved in CETO. I wouldn't call that as much a, an accomplishment, but um, our diplomats were much involved in that procedure and, and established a good reputation working in, in that forum. Um, the Colombo Plan, uh, which was not enthusiastically, uh, well, the, the original approach of Macintosh was very unenthusiastic, so was Berenson, but um, New Zealand eventually put a lot of effort and time into the Colombo plan, and Macintosh came around eventually to believing that it was a very valuable 
um, effort on New Zealand's part. And the other achievement, I think, is the early response to Britain's attempts to uh, enter the EEC. Um, that's when the Ministry, as a uh, department, um, began to reveal to the government that it had a, had a, was a useful tool in, in preserving New Zealand's interests in the economic sphere, because the Ministry up till then had not, Department Ministry had not been a, a major player in that area. The, the old departments, Customs and Treasury um, control and Industries and Commerce controlled that, that area. Um, so I've already mentioned how I, we, in the end we split, split the two, but at least the, I had a plan and that plan was basically all the other chapter, our parts were supposed to be in the same format. The, the first chapter of each part really looks at structure, the appointment of diplomats overseas, this, the creation of posts and challenges, which um, Stephen did for his part, and um, Hamish McDougall did the achievements, which was more focused on that EEC uh, area. And in the third part, um, Diana Morrow did the structure and the posts, and Anita took on both achievements and um, challenges very well too. So um, we had the plan, and then the, the idea was to find the material to, to write it up. In my period, I was I was the fortunate one of the three of our, our authors because I had the Macintosh papers covering the whole period of my part, and the Macintosh papers are just um, sensational um, research tool. Really, um, his correspondence with with a variety of people at different levels in the in the department and our people outside the department. You, so, okay, sorry, I've got time. Um, I will quickly say the records of the State Service Commission and the External Affairs Department, they're a huge uh, volume, um, mostly in archives. We didn't really have time to delve deeply. We had to search out uh, particular papers. Um, Lakings and Corners papers were very useful as well. And the challenge really, from my point of view, was making sure that I didn't completely focus it on, it's not a biography of Macintosh, it's, it's using his material to um, shape the, the chapters. And seeing I've run out of time, I won't carry on to talk about diversity, but the Foreign Service Association records are a huge source for that area too, especially in tracing what happened during the 70s with women and Māori coming through eventually into a major element in the department. Thank you. Okay, again, I'll devote my time to three main points uh, on the challenges of writing this history. The first of these is rather prosaic, and I imagine not at all unique, uh, is the simple matter of logistics, uh, namely doing justice to the many complicated things that happened in a relatively small space. Uh, some people may not say the book is small, but it looks different when you're writing it. Uh, books could be written, have been written, on the seminal events of my briefing, the end of the Vietnam War and the situation in Cambodia, nuclear politics, including testing, the end of ANZUS and the Rainbow Warrior Affair, recognising China, 
negotiations around Britain's entry into the EEC, public outreach in an age of protest, new attention to the South Pacific, and a few other issues besides. And my briefing had an allowance of 10,000 words, uh, which I think I broadly kept to. Ian, don't answer that. In short, writing the chapter was a real exercise in concision and precision. Uh, the process started with writing out masses and masses of notes on history and foreign policy, which then informed trawls through archival records, personal papers, and interviews in the search for inputs and perspectives of foreign service officials and personnel. Reviews then sought to compact the general history and to make it a contextualizing uh, point within the study of the foreign service, not the story itself. A second and related point is the challenge of seeking to map out the intersections of policy making where various inputs and influences were in play. Obviously looking at what happened is a lot easier than figuring out why what happened did. And in many cases we have timelines that note the decisions made, sometimes we can track the origins of those decisions, but often it's a little bit more quieter about what happened in between. Were outcomes the results of consensus, compromise or contestation, forced by events or favoured by particular personalities? Churchill once colourfully described Kremlin intrigue as a dogfight under a rug, in which the outsider can see some shapes, hear some growls, but can only deduct what happened when one dog emerges and another does not. Now, thankfully, happily, illusions of fatalities are not applicable uh, in this case, but the measurement of actual outcomes against possibilities that stayed under the rug is, I think, apt. A good example is the shifts that occurred in the Ford defence strategy, which centred on maintaining an infantry battalion on the Malay Peninsula in coordination with Britain and Australia, with the objective of building up regional security. This came under review from April 1967 when Wellington was advised by Whitehall that Britain intended to draw down its military presence east of Suez. The prospect that British forces would be completely withdrawn by late 1971 had major implications for New Zealand and Australia as their contributions were integrated with British logistical systems that could not obviously be replaced. What did eventuate is quite clear. In June 1968, talks between Britain, Australia, New Zealand, Malaysia and Singapore laid the foundations for the five power defence arrangements, which came into effect on the 1st of November 1971 and which endure roughly half a century later. Prime Minister Holyoke presented the decision as a national watershed, recalling the Second World War and evoking a sense of independence. Once it may have made sense to say where Britain goes, we go, now, as Britain leaves south, or withdraws from Southeast Asia, it makes no sense to say, when Britain leaves, we leave. Likewise, Secretary of Foreign Affairs George Laking recalled the decision to stay as part of a post-imperial approach, a New Zealand assessment of New Zealand interests, and claimed the decision was, without question, one of the most significant of the post-war era. Behind the public statements were somewhat more intricate manoeuvres and some differing, differing perspectives between external affairs, the Ministry of Defence and the Joint Intelligence Committee in the aftermath of Whitehall's 1967 announcement. The Chiefs of Staff generally restated the rationale of Ford Defence and favoured maintaining a presence in Singapore in cooperation with Australia. However, an initial external affairs briefing argued that Britain 
Britain's withdrawal compelled an obligation, and I quote, to re-examine the basis for maintaining a military presence in the area and proposed that the ambition to promote collective security in Southeast Asia would be best served through a tighter, tight, sorry, best served by a tighter collaboration with the United States. Quote, since we can play no independent role and can find a military place in Southeast Asia only by associating with a major ally, we have no choice but to prepare to transfer our efforts into the American sphere. Close quote. Consequently, proposals were prepared for a transfer of military assets to Vietnam. This decision, however, withered on the vine as news came from the United States uh, of the mood created in the aftermath of the Tet Offensive. Frank Corner reported from Washington that the offensive had created an air of gloom, almost disaster within the Johnson administration, and that he had overheard Frank talk that the US might cut its losses. In summation, in looking at what did emerge from under the rug, there is a challenge to keep an eye out for other dogs. A third challenge, which is hardly unique to diplomacy, but has a particular resonance within it, is the challenge of tracing the human face within decisions and actions. Diplomacy is undertaken within institutions and in concert with wider political systems and bureaucracies whose records perhaps inevitably de-emphasize personal factors. It is worth reminding ourselves that diplomacy, more than many things in life, is entwined with personalities, opinions, moods, relationships, and immediate conditions. Gerald Hensley, an official with notable experience in diplomacy, puts it well in a recollection of his reaction to examining a political science student's thesis and contrasting a very apt consultation and citation of archival records with a general sense of, it wasn't like this. In his words, the files often lack the human thumbprints of those who made them, or the muddle and misgivings, the arguments and atmospherics which precede what actually happened. Close quote. And shades, I think, of dogs under rugs, perhaps. Elsewhere, I've poured over the July crisis which preceded the First World War and have been reminded that the involved officials were facing a fluid and high-stakes situation while being tired, confused, stressed, and operating under various constraints. And as Anita reminded us, this is not confined to what some might consider the history of a century ago. Interviews and personal accounts were invaluable in meeting this challenge and a good reminder that diplomacy always involves people. They added some sense of what it was like to learn Farsi in a relatively tight timetable, the sense of being isolated in a Pacific posting, in times of much slower communications and sporadic shipping timetables, the details which impressed the mood in Fiji in the lead up to the first coup, the clash between seminal events and small moments of life. My favourite is Piera MacArthur's recollection of the start of the coup in Chile with her husband skidding around the corner out of the bathroom with shaving cream on his face shouting, it's happening, it's happening. It's not quite how Hollywood would do it, I think. Despite the larger systems they operated within, it was officials on the ground who carried the immediate risks during airstrikes in the Iran-Iraq war or in taking in fugitives during the Iranian revolution after coups in Chile and Fiji or in smuggling people out as the fall of Saigon approached. In summary, researching and writing this record presented some intriguing challenges, uh, but it was a fascinating history to track. You are all, of course, most welcome to purchase a copy and to check our thinking on this, available, of course, in time for Christmas, if you'll forgive one uh, less than diplomatic remark. Thank you. 
So I think it was about the year 2019, um, there was a Seek ad looking for researchers to contribute to this book on the history of MFAT. And I didn't even see it, but two different people who I know sent it to me and said that it sounds like me. Um, I have a background in ac academia. Um, I've published my PhD as a book and I've worked as a public servant and a researcher, including at MFAT. So you can understand why people thought that I would be a good person for the role. Um, so I worked at MFAT for um, two years and doing this role was a little bit of a shift of in position from MFAT for perhaps two years writing my story to me writing MFAT's story. Um, I had two roles while I was there. Um, one was um, working in the Environment Division, um, for example, on the International Whaling Commission, and the other one was working in the bilateral space um, in New Zealand's relationships with um, Europe, for example, um, preparing the Angela Merkel visit to New Zealand. Um, to be candid, um, some of the my during my time at MFAT were some of my career highs and also some really challenging times. Um, one of the highlights for me was attending the International Whaling Commission meeting um, in Slovenia at a time where New Zealand and Australia um, had won a case in the International Court of Justice and we were seeking to pass a resolution into the convention on, whaling, um, on the scientific whaling program from the court decision. Um, so it was interesting to go from working on the inside to um, working from the outside. Um, having worked at MFAT gave me some street cred or organisational navigation skills in terms of knowing some of the people, the language, the acronyms and how things work there. Um, but I still had some independence having been away for a few years and um, from my work as an independent researcher. Um, my chapters were about events that took place over around the last 30 years. To put it curtly, it's more difficult to talk about the experiences and events involving people who are still alive than those who are no longer with us. It's a bit of a double-edged sword um, because of that difficulty, but it means that I get to interview people, which is something that I love to do. But it's also harder in making sure that I accurately resent people's stories and where there are different points of view about how a story is told, for example, in the editing process. So one of the biggest challenges of this research was the editing process. Um, it included multiple people and often with contradic contradictory suggestions on how to edit very recent history. That's quite an understandable point when you consider that people can experience the same event in quite different ways. Um, there are perception issues and legal risks associated with describing New Zealand's foreign policy. And a lot of people who work for MFAT are career diplomats and their careers and lives are very intertwined. To put it short, it's personal. So some of the sources for my research included biographies from people who work for MFAT, such as Gerald McGee, uh, news stories and journal articles. Um, we were also given access to um, MFAT emails and documents. Um, there were recorded oral histories at MFAT um, and a YouTube series made for the 75th anniversary. Um, but the main area was um, in interviews. And I just want to acknowledge the work of Charlotte McGillan, um, who worked at MFAT and now works here in helping us with that process. So the highlight of the research process for me was the experience of interviewing some of our most amazing leaders, including Vangelis Vitalis, New Zealand's lead trade negotiator, or people like Dale Higgy, who've made enormous, massive contrib contributions to uh, internationally on nuclear disarmament, or people like Victoria Hallam and Andrew Gillespie, who gave their all on um, helping to 
uh, bring into effect the Christchurch call. I take the process of doing interviews pretty seriously in terms of preparation, asking good questions and following ethical processes. I'm often complimented for asking good questions. It's about doing good research in advance, putting yourself in the other person's shoes, being an active listener and being open to the conversation going in new and unexpected directions. Sometimes you actually end up almost throwing the questions away when you're in the conversation as well. You'd be surprised at how much people relish the opportunity to step out of the everyday and reflect on their career and to be listened to. I often gain people's trust quickly, and that's partly because I assure them that I won't share the recording if they don't want, that I'll run the draft um, right up back past them. Um, that's because I hold the opportunity and gift of representing people's st stories as a serious responsibility. Some people might think that's a bit over the top, but I think it's very, very important when someone gives you their time, trust, energy and language to treat that with the utmost respect. The reviews that we got of the book were mostly good. Um, I was quite surprised to be reviewed by Simon Bridges. <laughs> um, the feedback that actually meant the most to me um, was feedback that was unexpected. Um, one person who had since left the ministry wrote to thank me um, for the inclusion of his story. Um, and another person who works there now um, and is included briefly in one of the chapters wrote to say it was a great read. So things like that that are unexpected were quite meaningful to me. Um, this is what it means the most to me because at the heart of it, um, from my point of view, is the representation of people's stories and using the skills that I have to do that in this process. Well, thank you very much, uh, Ian, uh, Stephen, and Ed, for those terrific uh, accounts of the challenges of actually writing the history. So now we do have some time. Uh, we have until about uh, half past one, so about another 25 minutes for question. The floor is now open if anyone wants to make a question or comment. Hi, this is to all three. Were you subject to any lobbying from any direction about what should or shouldn't be in the content? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'll start. Um, in my period, no, I was not subject to any um, content suggestions by anybody, although the governance group provided comments about what should they thought might be in the history. Um, but the short answer is no, and uh, the diversity chapters I wrote, I had no direction or um, nothing, nothing that I wasn't allowed to say. Or um, so, I, my answer to you would be no. Yeah, again, the short answer is is no. Uh, there were a few rounds of feedback from various people within and beyond MFAT, including uh, Malcolm. Uh, that provided a lot of great feedback and did refine some elements of the chapter. There was one issue that was perhaps a bit more sensitive, um, but ultimately that went in the book as originally written. So return to my short answer, no. Um, as I just mentioned, there were a few instances where 
um, different people interpreted the same situation in a different way. So we had to work through that and resolve some of those things. Um, but when we were given the chapters to do, we had an outline of the particular topics that we would cover. So we worked with Ian on that. Um, so yeah, there were a few things to just talk through and make sure, for example, when I did an interview and I would send back the draft content that related to that interview that the person was happy with how that was written up but there was no sort of direct lobbying or anything, I would, as I would put it in that language. If I can come back, I mean, the most controversial issue really is how we treated the ministry business model in 2012. Um, there was some comment that unless we addressed it, um, it would, the book would have no credibility with members of the ministry. Um, we, did, we weren't told that we... we any particular way that we had to cover it. And I think, well, this chapter was really Joanna Spratt, um, Joanna's chapter. Um, uh, we had a draft which we circulated a lot to people and at the end we circulated it to John Allen and I, I expected as editor that there may be some problems but John Allen came back and, and to his credit said well, I don't agree with everything that's written here, but um, there's only one thing I think you need to fix, and this is a, a factual error that, quite rightly, he, he picked up. But um, he didn't object, and uh, we sent it to Brooke as well. I don't think Brooke had time to, to actually read it, just out of courtesy. Um, but... Uh, no, we didn't, we didn't receive any instructions about how we were to treat that period and uh, so I would I would say we were, were under no editorial uh, censorship of any type in the project okay other questions or comments yeah I'm uh, over here okay order to the panel um, can the panel comment on the policy impact of the nature of the relationship between ministers and foreign affairs officials in the period each has covered? <laughs> well, that's going to take care of the rest of the time. <laughs> well, again, I'll start. Well, between in the period that I wrote about, uh, the relationship was relatively okay but between Fraser and Macintosh. Um, Fraser was a very adept from probably our greatest foreign minister, I think. Um, but when the National Party took over, um, Macintosh had little respect for the Minister of External Affairs, Deutsch, Frederick Deutsch. Um, the succeeding ministers were equally um, problematical in his opinion. Um, so I wouldn't say the relationship between uh, the ministry and the politicians was that good in the early 50s. When Walter Nash came back in, McIntosh expected it would be a much plainer sailing because uh, sorry, Nash had been New Zealand's first diplomatic head of mission and he expected that he would get a better hearing, but Nash turned out to be um, very difficult to deal with also because he wouldn't make a decision and... Um, and was very uh, parsimonious about uh, spending on diplomatic activities. Holyoke came in um, 
Macintosh had also been dismissive of him, but to to make to Holyoke's credit, I think he realised the value of the Department of External Affairs and the need to appoint people who are competent to overseas posts. A few political appointments were made, but Holyoke appointed Laking to Washington and Corner to New York. So he revealed himself as a pragmatic prime minister that he was willing to, to um, meet the department's wishes to have more career diplomats in overseas posts. Uh, so the, the relationship was fraught at times, uh, but became better towards the end of McIntosh's period. Uh, yeah, I'll aim to be quite concise to move through these. Uh, again, continuing from Hollyoak, um, into the Laking years, 65 to 72, um, Hollyoak tended to have quite a hands-off approach with many of Laking's initiatives, most notably his idea of public outreach and trying to bring uh, a public consensus along with foreign policy and, and the work the um, external affairs, foreign affairs was doing. Uh, moving into the Marshall years, the overall impression I have is of the relationship um, regarding the EEC in which there seems to be a general consensus of a very effective partnership um, between Marshall and, and the work that was trying to be done in, in, in responding to that. Uh, Kirk, and now moving into the corner years, 72, um, there seemed to be a natural rapport between Kirk and, and Corner, both who were interested in New Zealand taking up a, a new role in the Pacific and, and global affairs. And I don't think we ever quite cracked it, but the idea of sending a frigate to Miraroa uh, to protest French testing had initially been pitched uh, a decade earlier uh, in the Holyoke years by Corner. And I think um, Macintosh's response was, for goodness sake, don't tell Holyoke that he might go for it, or words to that effect. <laughs> Um, I don't know if it was Corner who took that back off the shelf, but for whatever reason, Kirk was certainly keen on that idea. The Muldoon years, um, more complicated in many ways. Muldoon made various comments that, um, well, I imagine if, if, if external affairs staff were less diplomatic, they might be pulling their hair out. Um, particularly the one that comes to mind is uh, regarding President Jimmy Carter uh, as a peanut farmer. And then into the longer years in the fourth Labour government, again, a lot of complicated things are happening, which has many impacts on the policies the, the ministry was pursuing. Um, but it's a managed time. It's a managed affair. It's a, it's a working relationship. And I think it sort of echoes some of the points Ian uh, raised previously. Um, I'll make two comments. Um, one from my own experience from having worked at the Ministry, which was from around early 2013 to early 2015. Um, I was the desk officer for um, the International Whaling Commission, so that would involve a lot of drafting media releases and speeches and things for, at the time, um, Minister Murray McCulley. And I never met him in person, but by the end of that period, I felt like I knew his voice and I knew what he was wanting to say in those lines. So it's kind of an interesting relationship sometimes when you're working within the building and you are writing things on behalf of a leader in that respect. Um, one of the areas, um, I think it's fair to say that there are some uh, policy approaches that the ministry and its ministers will be on the same page at, um, but there are other ones where 
it involves some negotiations um, where sometimes um, people who work at the ministry will have to influence and try and convince ministers of the merit of a certain approach. And um, one of the areas where I talk a little bit about that is in um, trade, where some of the people who were working within the ministry could really see the opportunities um, for New Zealand to um, build free trade agreements with some of our um, Asian partners. And it took a little bit of convincing for us to build some of our longer term strategies. Um, but Ian may have some more comments on the more recent time period. No, not really. But I, I would comment that the Vietnam combat decision was one where the ministry persuaded Holyoke that he needed to make a contribution in Vietnam. It's quite clear that Holyoke was adamantly opposed to doing anything in Vietnam and the ministry, you would say, pressured him into finally making a, a decision um, in favour of sending a token force up to Vietnam um, it sort of raised some eyebrows because the ministry was basically pushing a political policy I, they knew it was important diplomatically in terms of relations with the United States but it, it's, it could be argued that they were stepping across the line to some extent, the government didn't want to do anything um, Thanks uh, from the research a resource that you dealt with, were there any periods which were particularly thin in what was available? And secondly, from a citizen perspective, it always seems, looking back, that 1956 Suez must have been a pretty uh, seminal moment, but it seems that New Zealand was pretty supine and going along with the British line. Is there more to it than that, or, is it, or was, in fact, was there anything in particular special about the uh, New Zealand response to the Suez debacle? Uh, maybe Anita and Stephen could answer the first question and you could answer the Suez one, Ian. So do you, you two want to go first, maybe, and answer Alan's first question about whether there were periods that were very thin for you? In terms of resource yeah, to re talk yeah, about them? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Was there an unevenness in the coverage for your period? Um. I don't think so. I think between having some of the access to the MFAT files and people being very forthcoming um, and allowing to me to interview them and share their stories and also some of the oral histories, there's a great library of oral histories um, in MFAT um, and just because of doing a more recent period, there's a lot of information online. Um, so it wasn't particularly uneven or challenging from the areas I was looking at. The... The um, part of my chapter on new attention to the Pacific was an interesting challenge, possibly more for me than in general. Uh, I owe a great debt to many former Pacific hands who were willing to be interviewed, uh, who could really shine light on that perspective. So that was a case where maybe there was a scarcity of resources in some sense, but also a solution. Yeah. So before I talk about sewers, just talking about resources, because the ministry is about 2000, moved to a digital record-keeping. Um, we did strike a few problems there, not so much in Anita's chapters, but in, certainly in Joanna's. It was very late in the piece that we finally got to see the business, ministry business model. They claimed that they couldn't find it, and eventually they did. The, um, the, the 
message that was sent back by the 40 heads of mission about the changes, we couldn't find a, a copy of that in the official records of the ministry, or at least Charlotte couldn't, because she was, Charlotte McGillan was our point person. Um, eventually, George Troop produced a, a copy that he had in his private possession. Um, so there were, to me, there are some issues about rec researching in records after 2000, if you're a historian. I, fortunately, my career is over, and I only <laughs> dealt with paper files, and I love paper files. But researching in the, in the digital records seems to me to present some challenges. Uh, sewers, yes, we went along with the British, but if you read the Macintosh papers... Um, Macintosh was tearing his hair out, um, not only at um, Holland, the Sydney Holland, the Prime Minister's go with the British, come what may attitude, uh, but also with the British. Um, the British didn't consult New Zealand in the way that we felt as a common, Commonwealth country that we should have been. Uh, we should have been receiving more information about how the British government was approaching the problem. Um, and then the, then the problem of the Royalist, the New Zealand cruiser, which the British almost drew into um, their plan, uh, into their military operations. Uh, Macintosh managed to persuade Holland that the cruiser had to be extracted straight away because it would be very likely to be involved militarily. Um, so behind the scenes, yes, there was a totally different picture and the, and the, interesting, they had a radio station set up at Makara to listen into the UN debates um, live, which nowadays we would sneer at, snigger about, but in those days that was a big thing. It was the first time I think we'd listened in Wellington live to the debates being held in the UN about sewers. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting story from behind the scenes. Unfortunately, in the book, it's really a couple of paragraphs that can't, couldn't go into it in the detail that really it warrants. But there's a great study by Malcolm Templeton. Of course, yes, I should have mentioned that. Malcolm has done a whole book on the subject and uh, he's gone into those aspects really deeply as well. Okay, we've probably got time. Oh, we've got one more online. Kia ora, um, from Alex. MFAT doesn't have a formal diplomatic training academy. I'm not sure if it ever has, question. Um, does the panel have any views about whether or not such a formal diplomatic training academy would be worthwhile in the present day? Well, I'll start again. Um, yes, I think it probably would be, but if, if, if you had the resources for it. Um, Macintosh took an, an attitude towards training diplomats that they, they'd learnt their job on the well, they learnt the trade, the craft, on the job, and um, we did send Bryce Harland to a diplomatic school in um, the U.S. And uh, more lately, um, some people went to Australia's um, academy or, or whatever it's called. Um, but there's never been a suggestion of setting up a um, an academy nor of having competitive exams to enter the, the diplomatic service as Canada had. Um, I, I'm not sure. I, 
I believe the numbers are quite increasing quite a lot. So I, I suppose if you had the time and the money, that would be a desirable development. We may have to, uh, just very quickly, uh, Stephen, if you want to. Oh, sure. Uh, it's a major feature in, in my chapter too, is that uh, if it's to professionalise the service or, or get particular skill sets, often cobbled together a lot of things. People take language courses all over the globe and plug into other people's systems. Doubtlessly, it would be um, have some advantage to have some sort of in-house, well, I don't want to say in-house, but um, a, a local professional um, means of achieving that. Anita, you want to add anything? Um, yeah, I remember the first day at MFAT and I rang my parents and told them that I was working on Wales and they said, do you mean the animal or the nation? Um, <laughs> so there is a certain amount of throwing yourself in there, which I think is characteristic of New Zealand anyway, but obviously there was a set of skills that I was hired for. Um, but also sometimes um, MFAT is seen as apart from other parts of the public service and I think that recently, maybe over the last 10 years or so, there's much more of a flow of people around the public service so that's beginning to change. But there could still be some merit for, um, definitely in having some kind of academy program, I think, as long as that's integrated into the wider public service and kind of the New Zealand Inc approach that we're trying to achieve in our um, interactions overseas. Thanks. Um, unfortunately, we have to bring the uh, Q&A to an end. Uh, before I hand over to Neil, who's going to just uh, close this session, I'd like you to join me in thanking the speakers. They have um, spoken very eloquently about the book. They've been prepared to answer a lot of quite tricky questions, and uh, I think we all owe them a great debt of gratitude. Oh, thank you, everyone. Just to reiterate again, my thanks to Anita, Stephen, Ian, and Malcolm for this um, really insightful um, discussion of how this, this great book has been put together. So thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening to this New Zealand History podcast from Manatū Taonga. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you're looking for other content about New Zealand history, check out earlier talks in the series. You can find them on your favourite podcast channels. Just search for New Zealand History. Mā te wā.